Let's pray together. If you're willing, comfortable, maybe just open your hands where you are to the Lord. And offer up to God just quietly where you are. What's the cry of your heart this morning? God be with us. Place Jesus in front of us today as the center of it all. God, if there are places in our lives, in this church, in our nation, in our world where we need to be realigned, please have your way with us. God, we pray for our leaders this morning in this country, that you give them wisdom, that you will send glimpses of your nature, your character into their lives to remind them of who you are. God, we ask that you move uh, in our hearts, that we may, that we may truly, uh, in this nation, be the United States of America. And God, this morning we're here celebrating uh, all that Jesus has accomplished, which wasn't just for this nation, it's for the world. Root us in your greater mission. And God, I, I need your help this morning to pour through me a gift of preaching uh, that we may be formed more in the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Who's excited about Tuesday? Um, I look forward to... Tuesday, November 8th, almost every year. And maybe some of you are more excited than others about this Tuesday. We've got big decisions to make. Some of you are going to choose to participate. And uh, how you participate is going to give you energy that's going to carry you for a few hours. Some of you will choose to participate and it's going to have a reverse effect on you. Some of you will choose to participate and it's going to be the hardest decision you've had to make this year. Some of you will participate and it's an easy decision. Uh, some of you are going to choose to participate and you're trying to choose between what's bold and what has flavor. And of course I'm talking about November 8th. It's National Cappuccino Day. Um, which <laughs> some of you will participate because maybe it's what you do every day. Some of you may not. Uh, by the way, today is National Nacho Day, and there are a few days I'm more proud to be an American than today, so if you want to participate with me, uh, Central Barbecue, let's go love up on it here in a little while, all right? But first, let's, uh, let's dive into um, what God has to say. Look, I'm not trying to make light of what's happening this week. I've prayed over what to say this morning. I've, I have fasted. I've really been seeking the Lord because there are Christians who will meet all over the world today, and some of them will meet in church buildings, some will meet in fields, some are in caves. Uh, and the majority of Christians, the large majority of Christians today, aren't probably that concerned about November 8th. It's not really on their radar. These are Christians who live in Africa and South America and Asia and South Korea, and, uh, and maybe they're aware of what's happening here in the United States. Maybe they're not. But for Christians in, who are gathering in churches in America, there's... I, churches are going to do all kind of different stuff this morning. There's some people and some preachers who will step up and they're going to attempt to tell their people how to vote on Tuesday and some will choose to not say anything about it because they don't want to bring politics into the church. And it's a reminder for me, I, I mean, I, we are not of this world, but we do have something to offer to this world. There will be some who are going to talk about certain issues and some who will talk about other issues. And 
I just, I, I feel like God just wants me to try to speak a word of hope this morning, a word of what it means to be God's people in our culture. So uh, I know some of you will go home and you're going to go to lunch today and you're going to be like, I wish Josh would have said this or I wish he didn't say that or I wish he would have talked about this more. And it's almost one of those days where like, can a preacher really win? And maybe the best way to win is let's, let's try to see what Jesus has to say about how we live this week, all right? Um, uh, Tim Keller once said, at the heart of every culture is its main hope, what it tells its members that life is all about. And that is so true of, it's true of a nation, it's true of a community, it's true of your workplace, like what are the values that drive people, whether they're good or bad values, like what are the values that drive who we are, what is it that we're telling people our hope is in, what demands your loyalty? There, there are certain things I am, I am loyal to. I have five sports teams that I, I really root for, and I'm loyal to them. I, I'm, one of the reasons I still have not been to the Cheesecake Factory in Memphis is because I'm too loyal to the Cheesecake Corner, which is downtown. And I don't want the Cheesecake Corner to feel like I'm cheating on it. I am loyal to Jimmy Fallon, because I think if he gave me a shot, that we would be best buddies. And if there's a night where I... I watch Kimmel, I feel like I need to call up the Fallon show and apologize, but, and just say, you know, dude, Mark Paul Gosler's on Kimmel, I need to follow him, you know. Um, Casey values loyalty. My wife, Casey, values loyalty almost more than any other characteristic or trait. To be loyal is something that she clings to. So for the next three weeks, I want to talk about the one word, Allegiance. And uh, allegiance is, if you even looked it up in your dictionary, we give allegiance to a person, to, to groups, and to a mission. And, and the word allegiance isn't a word that shows up a lot in Scripture. It shows up a few times. <laughs> and what Scripture does deal with is that there are a lot of things that are called idols that appear in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, that are vying for, for our allegiance. So this morning we're gathered in a place, and I'm assuming you're here either because you, you desire Jesus, you want to know Jesus, you want to walk with Jesus, and, and you're here because you care something about God, about faith, about the church. And when we come into a place like this, when we, when we gather with people, we want, we want to be aligned in the ways of God. I don't know any of you, I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I want to be misaligned. Like, I want to, I want to go in a way that doesn't honor God. But what I know is I need some reflection in my life sometimes because there are times where I get misaligned and it's not because I'm making intentional decisions to be misaligned. It's that I need God to reveal how I've allowed my thoughts to go in places where they're giving allegiance to things that aren't of God. I'm allowing the passions of my heart to be driven in certain directions that are not of God. And I need God to awaken me to these things so that I can be realigned. Uh, But being realigned is hard because we have to be willing to allow someone to show us what it is in our lives that may need to change. In Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there, go. I just want to focus on the very first of Exodus 20. This is where God gives uh, his people the Ten Commandments. Uh, And I was drawn here the last couple of weeks because, uh, and I've talked some about the commandments. We had a series in the book of Exodus probably seven or eight years ago, and we talked about the Ten Commandments. When God gave the Ten Commandments to people, it's not just because God loves giving rules. It's not just because God wants you to keep rules. It's because God knows what it means to protect the beauty and the sanctity of life. 
So the reason he gives the Ten Commandments isn't because God was just trying to think of rules for you to follow. It's that God wanted to protect the goodness of life. And here, here's a way to do it. Now, <clears throat> I've talked to you about this before. And, and I could, if you want to talk about it more this week, shoot me an email. Uh, give me a call. We can talk about it more. In Jewish weddings, even today, Exodus 19 is a part of their weddings. The, uh, many of the, um, their traditions and things they do come from Exodus 19 because as Jews read Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, they think about weddings. And in Exodus 19, it's God who is preparing himself or preparing people to enter into this wedding, into this marriage with God. And the way Jews read the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments are actually like wedding vows that God and his people are reciting to each other as they enter into this deep covenant. Now, I get to do a few weddings every year, uh, and I have two sets of wedding vows that I often give people. If they don't, Some people these days are choosing to write their own. I have two, two different sets that I give them, and they choose from them, or they choose phrases from one or phrases from the other. But, but the, every once in a while, maybe one wedding a year, people want to write vows to each other. Uh, I have a few. Can I share these with you? I have a few that I came across this week. I thought these were great, all right? Uh, one, one guy said this, I, Philip, promise to count every penny that comes into our grasp and account for it using two-column ledgers and everything your accountant has done previously. I promise to love you, Amelia, unconditionally in sickness and in health till death do his part, even when you feel the need to accessorize with $400 shoes. <laughs> Uh, another one, I promise to love you even when you refuse to let me watch football, to cherish you even when you blow one week's salary on yet another handbag, and to understand you even when you are mad at me because of something that happened in a dream, all right? <laughs> this happened the other day to, to Casey and me. Like we, we woke up in the morning, and she was just giving me this glare. And she was like, who is she? I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, you cheated on me in a dream. I'm like, don't take your, your dreams out on me, all right? Here's another one. I, Andrew, chose you, Hannah, to be my partner in life. I promise to try to remember to put down the toilet seat and to replace the toilet roll when it finishes. I promise to remember this day with love and roses and to look after you if you get sick. I will always love you. One more, all right? And this one was written months ago, okay? So it wasn't just over the last week, but I promise to love you as much as the Chicago Cubs and not hold your black and white striped dress against you. From this day forward, I will listen to all of your complaints about the mall if you say them during the off-season and promise to retire my baseball cap and face paint for public outings. I will love you in sickness and in health from this day forward until death parts us or you become a White Sox fan. All right? <laughs> all right. Back to Exodus 20, okay? Uh, because the way the Ten Commandments goes is that in Exodus 19, God has Moses prepare God's people. They've, they've come out of Egypt, uh, they've been through the wilderness, and now God gives Moses these things to do to prepare the people to meet with God on this mountain. It's like this wedding procession where Moses is walking the bride, the people of God, up to the mountain where God is coming down to meet with them just like a wedding. And the first thing God says, the first commandment, to, to start off... These wedding vows is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's like God starts it off by saying, look, I want to be for you and I want you to be for me. No other gods. Now, God is offering this vow. He's offering the Ten Commandments to people who had just come out of Egypt and had complained time and time again. 
right? And, and I think God also knew that down the road, these people are going to betray him and turn their back. Again, he's, he's asking the unfaithful to enter into this, this covenant where God is still willing to be faithful. And he's offering them this invitation into this wedding, into this marriage, this relationship, this covenant. So a guy named uh, Dobonko, a while back, wrote about uh, Christianity in America, and he wrote about three phases that in some ways blessed Christianity but also presented challenges. So this guy wrote about Christianity in America throughout the history of America, and, and I think some of it may be somewhat enlightening. The first phase was as he writes, that America was founded on some Christian principles, some Christian values. Now, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a perfect reflection of what the Bible was offering because I think any time we, we come to, to something, there are things we value over other things. Uh, for example, the, though America was founded on Christian principles and Christian values and, and God was part of how they wanted to live life, I've yet to find an African-American or minorities who say phrases like, I really want us to go back to the 19th century when we were a Christian nation, or 60 years ago to when we were a Christian nation. There were principles that were driving America uh, 200 and some odd 50 years ago that we're still trying to live into, about freedom for all and liberty and justice for all. All right? But there were these Christian values and Christian principles that have been a part of the language of America since we were created. Now, there's another phase that came along, and it was the phase of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment period, where there was now research and, and the advance of science and, and the mind, the ability to reason, the ability to understand the human body, the ability to understand things about the world and, and, and biology. And there was just this, this, through scientific research, an understanding of the world. So when the Enlightenment happened, technology is now moving, and now there are dreams of like putting people on the moon and things like this, there became more and more people who no longer committed their lives to God because they think they had figured out the world. This is why in the 1960s, the New York Times released a cover piece that, uh, that became conversations all over the nation. In the 1960s, when uh, on the cover of the New York Times was, Is God Dead? This is also when the song, many of you and those of us who were raised in Churches of Christ, 728B, it was written in response to this movement of, is God dead? Like, do we need God for anything anymore? Because God got us maybe this far, but now the human mind has advanced. And so the Enlightenment has created some challenges. It's blessed the world too, right? But it's created some challenges for Christianity and how much we rely and trust on God for things. The third thing is, the third phase throughout the history of America is the the attention that's given to the self, to the individual, where um, your happiness and your fulfillment and what drives you seems to trump, uh, seem, it's probably not a good word to use, trump, right? Seems to, um, <laughs> seems to weigh more. Um, <laughs> goodness, I'm so sorry. Um, what drives you so the self becomes like what matters in life is is yourself and for hundreds of years not just for america but thousands of years through the history of the world even for those who love to be alone for introverts there was also this need that hey i need the community to survive 
And, and where there has been this rise, especially over the last few decades, on this focus on the self. You can be whoever you want to be. You can grow up to do whatever you want to do. It's all about you. It's, it's your happiness, your fulfillment. You have people who are no longer so much focused on the good of the world. And this creates a lot of challenges for Christianity. Whatever culture you live in, and as Del Banco points out, if we're not careful, any of those things can become forms of idolatry. So I did a five-part series, a four-part series in the month of October called Global God. And it was part of our 316 offering, but this way to see that God is global, his mission is global, it's always been global. It's, even in the Old Testament, there's this, this progression that's happening. And the statement I laid in front of you a few times was, can we believe that it's possible to believe that God loves America without thinking that God only loves America? And when someone presented to me, probably a decade ago or so, is they said there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. And the difference is, patriotism is, I don't think there's anything wrong with you loving where you are. You, the Olympics come, and you, are, you love America. You love what America has to offer. You love the, the freedom, the democracy. You love baseball and apple pie and all the things that America has given to the world. Patriotism, there's nothing wrong with it. We are grateful for those who've sacrificed their, sacrificed their lives for freedom. Yet nationalism is when we begin to think that God only cares about this nation, and this nation is better than any other nation, and only this nation has good things to offer to other nations without seeing that God is global. He's moving all over the world, trying to point all people, all people to Jesus. Tim Keller says this, Any dominant cultural hope that is not God himself is a counterfeit God. He says an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. And sometimes this stuff happens when we have these idols that, that, that come into our lives and it's not because we're out there looking for them. It's not like in the Old Testament where there's Nebuchadnezzar and these huge idols that you're actually like bowing down to. It's how our minds begin to go, where we begin to daydream. When we have free time, where is our free time going? This, this, these idols appear in our lives Sometimes in the church, when we rely on the rightness of our doctrine for our standing with God instead of the grace of God that tells us who we are in Jesus, it happens in our culture when we allow ourselves to focus more on the hope of Washington, D.C., more than the hope of the kingdom of God that's coming into this world. The Bible has nations being misaligned. The Bible has individuals who are not aligned correctly. And God's desire is to see them realigned because his desire is to see the world realigned. And it does begin with us. Now, I want to talk about the self just for a moment, but I, I don't want you to think I'm talking about self for the sake of self because I think that's where it can become dangerous because God wants us to focus on ourselves for the sake of others. I think there are times in our lives when we need God to help us take some inventory. Celebrate Recovery is really good at this. How do you take inventory? How do you spend some time and allow some space in your lives for God to reveal some things that may not be aligned correctly? And let me tell you how this sometimes works in my life. It's like with my car. I will take my car in sometimes to get an oil change, and then someone will come up to me and say, do you, uh, for this much money, we can do an alignment check? And there are times where I say no, because I don't want to know what it may cost to get them realigned. You know what I'm saying? Like there are times when I know something may not be right, but I don't want to know what the cost is for it to be right. 
So there are times where I'm afraid to lay before God and to say, reveal things in me that aren't of you because I want them to change. Because if I ask God to start revealing things, the, the process of change and being realigned can be a really difficult, painful journey. Rehab hurts, doesn't it? But it's all to try to lead us to a healthier place. So are we willing to endure the hard work of being realigned so that we can be more connected to the center of God? And it's true for individuals, it's true for a church, it's true for a nation and for the world. Jesus invited Christians, he invites us into a marriage. Read Romans 6, go read Ephesians 5. It's wedding language of how Jesus is inviting people in the church in a relationship with him. One thing I've, I've done the last few weeks, because I'll just be honest, I've really struggled with how to pray through this election season. I've, trouble, I've, I've had some trouble, uh, um, what words do I pray? What am I asking God for? I've been confused in some of my prayer time. I don't know if you struggle with any of this. Sometimes all I have to offer God is just like a groan, like in Romans 8. Like I'm just offering this up to you that somehow your spirit is moving. But then what God did a couple of weeks ago is pointed me to the book of Acts to look at how the church prayed. Uh, because we talk about like we want to be like the early church, right? And one of the ways we can be like the early church is what did they pray for and how did they pray? So what I did is I read, I read the entire book of Acts to see how the church prayed. And if you go to that, we go to that next slide. Uh, I put up all the themes of the prayers of the book of Acts. Now, you may go through and, and, and you do the same thing, and you may come up with a few different, like, different words than I did, but look at, look at how the church prayed in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, they're praying for God's guidance, specifically for God to raise up a leader, a 12th apostle for them. Uh, they prayed, uh, one of the things they pray for more than anything else, they pray over leaders. So, so throughout Acts... They're laying hands on elders and missionaries and ministers in the church. They're laying hands on them uh, for a mission they've been given by God. There, there are prayers of adoration. Just times the church we get together and acknowledge who the character of God is. Like who is God and what drives him. There are prayers in uh, Acts 4 where uh, persecution came. Yet the prayers that flowed out of them were for boldness and that they would anticipate how God was moving in their lives and in the world. There was devotion to prayer. Let me pause on that just for a moment. In the book of Acts, the word devote or devoted is used four times. Three of the four is about prayer. The things the early church were devoted to, three of the four of them were prayer. The fourth one was Tapitha, who was devoted to good deeds of the Lord. Um, there, there are prayers for forgiveness. When Stephen's uh, being stoned, he's offering up forgiveness for those who have done him wrong. There are prayers for the Holy Spirit to come into new believers. There are prayers for sin to leave uh, sinners in Acts 8. Uh, there, there, um, this next one's actually chapter 9, verse 40, not chapter 8, verse 40, but it's Peter who prays for a dead girl to come back to life. Uh, Paul, later on, uh, is offering up prayers for the lost to be found, and then at the very end of Acts, there are prayers for healing. And I don't know if that's helpful for you at all. But what's helpful for me is to see how these people who experience the power of the resurrection and the fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how did they pray, what did they pray for, and what are the prayers you don't see in Acts? Not that you can't pray them, uh, but you don't have a lot of prayers for people's own safety and security and for their comfort. They're prayers that involve the mission of God. And what it was God, what he was doing in their lives and in the world. Now, here's one of the challenges for us. Is when we talk about 
that we want to be like the early church, that the culture of 2,000 years ago is so different than the culture we live in today. I mean, America is like one of the first places where there's actually, and maybe the first, where people actually had a vote to, to say who leaders of their nation were going to be. Back 2,000 years ago, they, they didn't have that. I think, and maybe some of you have just seen like online, even if you're not a baseball fan, how much the world has changed since the last time the Cubs won the World Series. There were no cars, there was no sliced bread, you didn't have fast food restaurants. Like so much has changed in the last hundred years. So much has changed for us in the last 15 years. Uh, my boys are nine and seven, and sometimes they're like, Dad, I want a cell phone for Christmas. And I'm like, yeah, right. You got to wait a, a much longer uh, before you get a cell phone. They're like, how old were you when you got a cell phone? I said, mom, your mom and I were 23 years old when we got our first cell phones. We had been married two years. And they look at me almost with tears in their eyes like they feel so sorry for us. Like, <laughs> you were t- 23 and you never had a cell phone. The world has changed so much over the last 2,000 years, but God hasn't changed. So much in the world has changed, but the mission of what the church is supposed to be about hasn't changed. That the same mission that Jesus came to live, the seeking and saving the lost, and being a place where those who are sick could come and experience dignity and, and healing, the mission of God hasn't changed. And I'm fully aware because I'm caught up in it, this political climate we're in where so much division, and I even preached back in May that there is such thing as PESD, post-election stress disorder, and it sounds funny until I've talked with counselors, and I hear of how their counseling loads go up every four years after an election, because Tuesday night, there will be people who are celebrating in victory and and other people who are deflated. And in 2004, 2008, 2012, I've been a preacher through the last three elections. We've had a Republican. We've had two Demo- uh, a Democrat elected twice. And, and all three of those election seasons, my counseling load in November because of certain family members who weren't invited, and this happened in all three elections, who weren't invited to Thanksgiving with family because of how they voted or how they refused to vote. I want us this morning just to take time of, is there anywhere in your life that you need to hit a reset button? Is there any place in your life this week where you need to spend time with God asking God to realign your thoughts and your hearts? Are there any places in your life where you need to give God some time to take some inventory to make sure our allegiance is given in the right direction? Because come Wednesday, I want this church to care about God and to care about people. I want us to care about God and care about people in a way that we will be a church that's willing to open up our arms and say, whoever, whoever, that's a broad statement, whoever has a desire to come closer to Jesus or to know Jesus or to seek Jesus, our arms are open and we want to walk alongside of you to help point you in the everlasting way. Uh, So Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to churches who were in Ephesus. And this was one of the most immoral cities in the first century world. And right in the middle of the book of Ephesians, Paul offers up a prayer to them. Like it's, these are people that when they look to the left and the right, all they saw was chaos and confusion and where are things heading. And, 
and who do we trust, and who are, who's in authority. Uh, so many things vying for their attention, yet they've given their lives to God, and right in the middle of Ephesians, Paul writes a prayer, and in that prayer, in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul begins by telling them how he prays. He's on his knees when he prays for them. And he gives them this prayer in the midst of all their confusion and chaos, this prayer of blessing. For those who are serving the table today, will you go ahead and make your way to the back to get the bread? And as you're making your way, I want to point you to the screen. I want you to see this video of Ephesians 3 being read over you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. A benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more and all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 